feds offer $10 million reward for Russia's sandworm hackers, and how will the ransomware landscape evolve? These stories and more on this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Anna Delaney. The U.S. government Tuesday announced a reward of up to $10 million for information pertaining to six alleged Russian military hackers tied to the 2017 NotPetya destructive malware campaign. Well, joining me to discuss is Matthew Schwartz, executive editor of Data Breach Today and Europe. Matt, do you think this reward will lead to the capture or extradition of the Russian suspects? It seems unlikely, Anna, so long as these suspects watch where they travel. Obviously, $10 million is a significant reward. So if they do choose to leave Russia, that will increase the risk that someone might wish to detain and hand them over. Now, the rewards being offered by the U.S. Department of State's Diplomatic Security Service. It's a program called Rewards for Justice, and it offers up to $10 million for information leading to the identification or location of any person who, and I'm quoting here, while acting at the direction or under the control of a foreign government, participates in malicious cyber activities that target the United States. Recently, the program's offered rewards for information tied to nation-state hackers from other countries, including North Korea, Iran, and also just in general, any foreign hackers targeting critical infrastructure. So if these rewards don't help capture these alleged nation-state hackers and lead to their appearance in a U.S. courtroom, do they matter? I put that question to multiple experts. I said, if we've got these big rewards and they're not necessarily being paid out, what's the use? And now let me just pause here and say the program has paid out about $200 million to what it says are more than 100 people since it was launched in 1984. Whether or not any of these have anything to do with cyber attacks or targeting U.S. critical infrastructure isn't clear. So the money is there, though, and there is an appetite for it to get paid out if this information comes in. However, if I were a Chinese, Russian, or Iranian foreign intelligence officer, and I knew I was the focus of a U.S. indictment, I'd be very careful where I went. So you asked, what's the use? One of them is norms. What is acceptable when it comes to intelligence gathering and espionage? Spies are going to spy. Ask any intelligence expert and they'll tell you this is what espionage is designed to do. In the bigger picture, it's designed to help nations avoid going to war. By spying, they can identify the planning and the thinking going on with foreign governments. This level of insight helps nations avoid getting to the point where they invade each other's borders. Obviously, it doesn't always work that way, but it helps. So in terms of what's acceptable or not acceptable when it comes to espionage, we've got NotPetya. That is the focus of this reward. And that was the focus of a 2020 indictment unsealed by a federal grand jury charging six Russians with having perpetrated this destructive malware campaign. Now, is destructive malware an appropriate thing for an intelligence agency to be doing? The U.S. says no. Many other people would agree with that assessment. Not Petya was disguised as ransomware. It was distributed via a legitimate Ukrainian software developer's update server. It spread out of control, causing commercial damage of up to $10 billion. Again, 
is this acceptable when it comes to espionage? I put this question to cybercrime expert Mark Rash, who's of counsel at the law firm of Corman, Jackson, and Krant. Here's what he says. The indictment itself, which occurred, you know, some time ago, is a shot across the bow. Number one, it tells the Russians, we know you did it. Number two, it tells the Russians, we know specifically the individuals who did it. And number three, it acts to somewhat isolate those individuals, restrict their ability to travel. And number four, it tells the American people, we're doing, quote, something, close quote, about cybercrime. This latest act probably is more focused on three and four. So you've got much more detail there from Rash talking about the importance of not just the indictment, but also this reward money when it comes to not only reassuring the American public, but serving as a warning to any foreign nation state hackers who might decide to unleash the likes of NotPetya in the future. So as long as they play it safe, it seems unlikely these intelligence officers will ever appear before a U.S. judge. Precisely. Now, we do see a lot of alleged Russian criminals getting caught out when they vacation. Oftentimes, it seems like they don't realize that they were the focus of an FBI investigation or that there is an indictment, typically because the indictment would have been sealed until their arrest against them. But while we see criminals allegedly getting detained. We have not seen the same thing with any alleged nation state actors. Now, of course, the rewards that have just been announced will be adding pressure on these individuals to make sure they don't travel to the wrong place. And for the future, adding pressure on them to do the right thing. Again, I spoke with Mark Rash, and he previously worked with the U.S. Department of Justice, where he started the computer crime unit within the criminal division's fraud section. Here's what he has to say about the impact specifically of the newly announced reward money. Well, what this does is it isolates the GRU officers. It it makes it more difficult for them to go to countries that are not affiliated or protected by Russia. Because before this, the truth is they would have to be captured by a foreign government and extradited. Now you're essentially incentivizing individuals to do the same thing. Now, there's no way a Russian citizen is going to grab their neighbor who works for the GRU and say to the Americans, hey, look, I found this guy. Again, this is upping the pressure on nation-state foreign hackers to do the right thing. Will it work? That's the $10 million question. Never say never. Matt, thank you so much for your insight. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. How will ransomware attacks evolve over the coming year? It's a question we'd all like the answer to. For one person who's been tracking the criminals closely is attorney Guillermo Christensen, a partner at Indianapolis-based law firm Ice Miller. There he specializes in cybersecurity planning and incidents, including around ransomware. ISMG's Matthew Schwartz asked Christensen how he expects the ransomware landscape to evolve in terms of the kinds of threats that organizations might be facing or the criminals that we see involved. Here's his response. So ransomware, the the, the amazing thing about it is you can hit a victim very quickly within hours and paralyze them. If you're exfiltrating data, it takes a lot longer because you might be needing to take hundreds of gigabytes of information, which most security 
systems in a company will see some of that and that'll trigger an alert. So there's a premium on speed for threat actors. One way that they've been talking about it is what if we didn't have to take the data out? What if we instead manipulate the data in such a way that whoever is the victim no longer has confidence in what they've got and they have to pay us to get that integrity, that, that ability to verify integrity again. Banks, for example, right? So if you, if you tweaked the data records for a bank just a little bit so nobody has any confidence in what they actually have in their accounts, that's one of the nightmares, right, for the financial sector. But something similar like that wouldn't require much. It would, it would potentially get past that problem of the data exfiltration. So I think that that's, that's certainly one concern. I think the extortion value of negative, sensitive, humiliating information is another area. Just steal a little bit, but the stuff that nobody ever wants to see. So Sony, when they were hacked by the, by the North Koreans, the thing that probably hurt them the most were these emails between their executives about how much they disliked dealing with the talent that they had. So I think that those are factors. And finally, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has issued new draft guidance providing updated and detailed recommendations for how medical device makers should address cybersecurity risk in the pre-market of their products. Our executive editor of Healthcare Infosecurity, Marion Kolbesok-McGee, discussed the new draft guidance with Dr. Suzanne Schwartz, director of the FDA's Office of Strategic Partnerships and Technology Innovation, Center for Devices and Radiological Health. Here's an excerpt of their conversation on how the guidance addresses varying levels of cybersecurity risk and medical device safety. So Dr. Schwartz, you mentioned that the 2018 draft guidance included those risk tiers for different types of medical devices. How does the new draft guidance address the different degrees of potential safety concerns to patients involving the cybersecurity of different types of medical devices, whether it's like an embedded cardiac device versus a medical imaging system versus an infusion pump? For instance, are all the manufacturers of all the different kinds of devices expected to take you know, the same certain steps or the same certain controls in terms of assessing their devices for cybersecurity risk? Right. That's a really important question. So the way we addressed it in removing the tiers was really utilizing, maximizing this concept of the SPDF, the Secure Product Development Framework, and what that entails. So embedded within that, you have one section which is entirely on documentation related to security risk management. And we call out and spend a fair amount of time talking about threat modeling within that section. So using the appropriate types of methodologies for threat modeling, the manufacturer would be performing that kind of even assessment as to what the risk is to the device and how they're intending, or the risks, I should say, even plural, to that device and how they're intending to manage the the risks of that device. That's one part. Another part of the SPDF refers to the security architecture and included or embedded within the security architecture are the expectations that manufacturer would submit security architecture views, and that includes, you know, multi-patient harm, as an example, what the global system looks like. There are, you know, security use cases. And then we include a fair amount of examples 
within the appendices to, uh, to the guidance that allows for viewing cybersecurity across the entire spectrum of medical devices, regardless of whether we're talking about something that is an infusion pump, um, a ventilator, an implantable, you know, a remote control device. So in giving consideration to the threat modeling aspects, the security architecture are you know, clearly going to be ways in which the manufacturer would provide documentation explaining how they've assessed that risk. And then when you move on into the testing um, and what they need to be doing as far as demonstrating to us in evidence how they've mitigated threats, what vulnerability testing has been done, what the penetration testing has been done, et cetera, as, as some examples of how that is being further undertaken. That's it from the ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time.